to the Continuing Education Podcast for CASA volunteers, connecting you with experts who can advance your advocacy for children and families. I'm your host, Maggie Halpin, and this is CASA on the Go. Welcome, y'all, and thank you for joining us for what is a very special episode of CASA on the Go. Today, we're mixing up our usual format to bring you a conversation between our Texas CASA CEO, Vicki Spriggs, and Dr. Jessica Price, Executive Director of the Florida Institute for Child Welfare. The short dynamic discussion you're about to hear is part of our Texas CASA Distinguished Speaker Series, and it's focused on how we can effectively address inequity in our child welfare system. To find out more about Dr. Price's powerful work, I can't recommend enough watching her 30-minute talk on the trauma of family separation, which you can find featured on our website. Hope you enjoy this special episode. Dr. Jessica Price is an assistant professor at Florida State University and currently the executive director of the Florida Institute for Child Welfare. For the past 10 years, she's been involved at multiple angles of child welfare. She has presented her research at more than 50 conferences, both nationally and internationally. Her TED Talk <clears throat> on implicit racial bias in decision-making has since been viewed over 1.2 million times. Dr. Price has worked on the front lines of child welfare, conducted primary research, and taught graduate level courses on child welfare. In 2019, she received a five-year appointment to the advisory board of the National Child Welfare Workforce Institute, where she consults and advises on leadership and workforce development around the country. Dr. Price has maintained and cultivated a commitment to the well-being of vulnerable children and families, the sustainability of the child welfare workforce, and effectively addressing inequity. Her paramount goal includes rebuilding and leading a child welfare system that focuses on strengthening families instead of pulling them apart. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Jessica Price. Dr. Price, we are thrilled to have you with us. You are our inaugural speaker at our Distinguished Speaker Series, um, and you bring with us a wealth of experience and information. So thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. You thank can't you for having me. Oh, again, our pleasure. You can't see, um, and neither one of us can actually see all the people who are watching, but we know we have over 200 participants at this point, and the numbers keep going up. They're from all over the United States, and they represent all aspects of the child welfare system. So I'm going to call them all stakeholder advocates, if you will, because at some point they touch children and families. So would you please explain <clears throat> why it's important for advocates, these stakeholder advocates who work with children in our child welfare system, to have an understanding of the system's history and context? Sure. I'll offer two reasons why I believe that it's important to have that understanding of history. One of them is so that we don't repeat the mistakes that we've made. I'm a firm believer, as I said in the presentation, that once we know better, we can do better. And secondly, I think it's important to understand history because I do more extended lectures on history and policy and how we've evolved as a system over the last 60 or 70 years. And I think it's important that now that we know that policies that we've implemented are usually patchwork, we're trying to fix what happened with the last policy, and they're very evolutionary. 
And when I talk about evolutionary policy, I talk about the fact that it's very normal and natural and expected. But understanding history and how we've continued to evolve, I believe, I would hope that it's time for us to do more revolutionary changes as opposed to evolutionary. You know, I absolutely um, agree with that. And I heard you when you made that statement. It's time in revolutionary times, it's time for revolutionary change. And I've heard you say, if we know better, we can do better. And in fact, the information's been out there for a long time. You cited that White House subcommittee study from 1930. Um, so we knew better and it's 2020 and we're still not doing better. Uh, what do you think it's gonna take to get us from where we are to where we need to be? So many steps, but I'll start with one of the first steps. And I think a lot of people um, are trying to get there, especially this year, and we're taking pivots toward becoming an anti-racist structure. We want our entire child welfare agency and community to be anti-racist. We are moving beyond simply being not racist. And we all know by now that becoming an anti-racist is being able to talk about these issues, issues that we've ignored, quite like they did in that White House report of 1930, issues that have been ignored for many years. As an anti-racist, we can't ignore anymore. We have to talk about these things. It's important to know that the word racist is usually an affront to people. It's very pejorative. But the first step we can all take to trying to move past this in our system is talking about this in a descriptive way. And we can call out policies and static procedures and talk about how they're harming a certain subgroup. And once we call that out, we are literally becoming anti-racist in that moment. Thank you. And that's a, a, a nice shifting of that perspective to take the, <clears throat> for those who need to have, who, who respond to the term emotionally, it allows them to like remove that piece and focus on what the real issue is. Um, mm -hmm. We talk about having a trauma-informed system of care, right? Um, and I think that generally when people think about a trauma-informed system of care, they're thinking about uh, the trauma of domestic violence. They're thinking of the trauma of substance use or misuse in a household. They're thinking of the trauma of specific child abuse. They're thinking of the trauma of a child being removed from the home, but they don't think about the generational trauma of racism. Okay. So how do we best support children and families who've experienced the generational trauma of racism? Because it leaves its own imprint on the community. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. And Dr. Joy DeGry talks about this poignantly in post-traumatic slave syndrome. And I think one of the first steps is calling out the fact that there is intergenerational trauma in a contemporary setting because of what ancestors had to deal with as it related to chattel slavery. So after, you know, I get a lot of questions, especially from foster parents and adoptive parents, because they ask, how can I be an anti-racist foster parent? You know, people that identify as white with black and brown children in their homes, they want to support these kids and the trauma that they've dealt with and the trauma that their families have dealt with intergenerationally. And it's an expansive question, but I usually tell them that we have to get better at asking and listening and less mandating and less requiring. So when, you, when there's a child in front of you, I tell people one question that I think is important to ask is tell me the last time you felt heard and truly loved. 
And when that child asks that, answers that question, it's going to be important for you to do all you can to try to recreate that because we've already had that trauma of separation. They're in our system and we've, we're trying to assuage any further trauma. So those are some things that I've recommended to foster parents that, again, like you said, want to support black children that are in their care. Thank you. And it kind of leads me to this next question that was submitted. In what ways can we develop new avenues of engagement that can lead to improved child safety, well-being, and permanency outcomes for African-American children specifically? And I want to add to that this notion of um, when we make the system work for those who are most disenfranchised by the system, we've made it work for everyone. Right. So going back to the original question, um, in what ways can we develop new avenues of engagement that can lead to improved child safety, well-being and permanency outcomes for African-American children? So I'm a huge proponent of daring to share power with parents, but also, like you said, African-American children. We did a podcast here in Florida about a year ago and we talked to a youth that was in care and they talked about being silenced and they talked about not having their voice be heard. So I believe in sharing power with parents, but also sharing power with children. So that is a way you can engage with someone, listening, asking questions, and we're usually working in hierarchical imbalance systems. But a balance of power is when you consider yourself a resource and a facilitator to the person who can define their own goals. So it should be participant-led, and we are there as a resource to provide what we can as they take their own personal journeys. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that balance of power <clears throat> and, and being mindful of that and the, the seeing ourselves as a resource, two things that we really have to be aware of, because oftentimes we, we say, come to the table. And then you have all these people with titles all around who then talk over the individual that you invited to the table. So that person is there, but not there. They don't feel empowered to be able to step into the conversation. And when they do, they're dismissed because they didn't say it the, it the right way, whatever the it is, or they didn't come to the table in a way that other people around the table with titles thought was important or worthy or valuable. So um, I, I think your points are certainly straight on. Um, well, you know, Vicki, Vicky, if yes. I may. Absolutely. Just based on, based on what you just said, when I do a power deconstruction lecture, I talk about the hierarchical power of imbalance. And then on the other spectrum is shared power. But there is this mediation in between, and that's not negotiated power. And you just described it perfectly. The negotiated realm, which I think many of our agencies are in, is they, they still wield the power. They still have the last say, but they give a little in an inconsistent way. Like you just said, they let you in the room, but were you already inclusive in the room or were you an addendum? things of that nature. So what you're describing is where I think a lot of child welfare is. They still have the power. They still are not going to incorporate the family voice to a certain capacity, but they'll give a little in an inconsistent way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just in a conversation recently where someone talked about, um, <clears throat> and you just used the term too, when you're talking about this negotiated or uh, power, it's we let them, right? let them assume you have the power and you're permitting somebody to do something. And mm -hmm. in a conversation, somebody said they let families do X, Y, Z. And I'm like, oh, you're killing me here. Um, because, you know, again, I'm holding the power and I'm going to allow these people, these parents that I say are valuable, I'm going to allow them to have value. It's like, whoa, you have to stop. You have to think what you think through what you're saying 
because there's a lot of power in words. And at Texas CASA, we're going through this process of shifting, consciously shifting our language to make it um, more conscious of the power of words, if you will, so that um, just in terms of how we use language to identify an issue, how we use language to bring in families, um, but just again, how we use language so that we can transform our system to a system that is one that looks at everything from an equity lens and understands everything from that equity lens and understands again, just the power of words. But I would, after that short ramble on my part, <laughs> I would ask if there's anything you would like to add to that um, based on your work. So I would add around the, the conversation of language is again, this idea that I hear people say that black children are removed from the system at higher rates. And people are trying to reframe that to say, you know, the system removes black children at higher rates. And the importance of that nuance is, is an anti-racist statement versus a racist statement. If you are an anti-racist, you don't look at a subgroup of people and in a, in a large lens say that they're deficient. An anti-racist looks at across the system, structurally, what has impacted to bring this person to this circumstance, generationally. So what you're describing in that one in common language is really a shift in mindset. So the most important thing you can do if you want to have common language is to ask yourself, where do you land versus anti-racist versus racist? Because if you ascribe to anti-racism, you don't blame the victim. You don't blame an ostracized and subjugated subgroup about their circumstances. You look at the larger picture. So that's how you start to shift mindsets and then shift language. Thank you. Um, so we were just given a four minute notice. So I'm gonna be really quick with this question. In some parts of Texas, there are a few families of color and child advocates may feel that because they work primarily with white families uh, that it's not important for them to understand the racism that's embedded in our work. What are your thoughts about that? So I have a couple of thoughts and I'll start with my, my first thought is going to be that if we want a truly anti-racist system, it's going to take all of us. We have to do it together. And from the seat I sit in, I don't interface with families at all. So, and I still advocate for anti-racist child protective services. So even if you have a caseload and 95% of them are Caucasian or identify as white, it's still important in my opinion that you are still fighting for anti-racism because we're trying to change the system internationally. We want global equity around child welfare. I also want to draw attention to the fact that I led a study around blind removals. And it's important to say that we not only blinded the race, we blinded the neighborhood because people have biases around poverty and around neighborhood. So even if you have a 95% you know, white people on your caseload, it's important to also prioritize equity around socioeconomic stratification. And I hope that helps. Super. And then my last question would be this. What keeps you doing this work? And what are the positive changes that you've seen? You talked about um, blind removals, but what other positive changes have you seen um, that give you a sense of hope to draw from? Incorporating the family voice is something that's happening all over the country. And that really gives me hope. 
you know, here in Florida, we have a program called VIPs, Very Important Parents. And these are parents that have gone through our system already, but now they're advocates and now they're employees of our system and they walk alongside family members that are going through the system right now. These VIPs also inform policy changes, participate in research. So we're incorporating people that have experienced our system about how to change it. And that's very encouraging. And I will, even though you all just heard this, the quote that I ended the presentation with is one that I carry with me. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, but the next best time is right now. So I'm encouraged to do all the planting I can right now so that we can really leave an imprint for the future. Thank you. And thank you for planting that seed, that tree seed with us today. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and your vision and your experience with us today. And I wanna thank all of you who are watching for being part of our inaugural session of our Distinguished Speakers series. We'll be back next Thursday, November 5th at 11 o'clock with Ricky Williams. I hope to see you then. And more importantly, I hope you walk away with some new insights and some new thoughts based on today's conversation with Dr. Jessica Price. Again, Dr. Price, thank you. And again, thank all of you. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Casa on the Go. Join us next time for more dynamic continuing education brought to you by Texas Casa.